You find it interesting, as I do, that so many people are enthralled by the coronation of a king in England. It happened yesterday. I heard 300 million people were focused on that. You know, how many of them are enthralled with the king of the ages, with the one who they will stand before on Judgment Day? like I'm breathing too loud or something. Can we turn that down a little bit? It's bothering me. I'm sure it's bothering you. Last week we looked at our call as a church family to make disciples. We said that a disciple is a transformational learner of Jesus Christ. That is someone who believes in Jesus by grace through faith and turning from his old way of life, he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, his teacher, with the goal of over time becoming just like his teacher. We said that CBCers, or CBC has been called to one main purpose, and that is to be a disciple-making community, to be a disciple-making community. And we are all, as a congregation, called to this. And there's two parts to making disciples. Part one is evangelism and expansion. To spread the good news of the saving work of Jesus on the cross, helping those in darkness to see the light of who Jesus is. And part two is establishing those saints, those converts, in the faith, and equipping those who receive Jesus Christ helping them to move from salvation to maturity and unto becoming a transformed disciple-maker. And we looked at some reasons why we should want to be a part of this. Because if we don't want something, we're probably not going to do it. That's who we are. And God made us that way. That's okay. But we should want to do this. And we talked about four reasons why we should want to be a part of a disciple-making church. One is simply obedience to God's call to do that from Matthew chapter 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And that was a command. That was an imperative. It was not a suggestion. This is what we're called to do. So obeying Jesus is certainly one reason we should want to do that. The second reason we talked about was it glorifies God to be a part of disciple-making. In, disciples, in part one of discipleship, evangelism raises up the, 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 gloriful, the, glory, the glorious um, cross and what Jesus did on the cross for us and paying for our sins. And that, that is the, talked about the pinnacle of the, of the glory of Jesus Christ and and step two, establishing and equipping new converts produces sincere worshipers, worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth and who will glorify God in so doing. Thirdly, we talked about it's our blessing to be a part of this. When we do what God has called us to, we find significance and purpose in life, which we all desire. And we also find fellowship with God 
and with one another, which brings us great joy as well. And fourthly, we should want to be a part of this because discipling another is the way, the significant way, the most significant way to love our neighbor. And our neighbor is those outside the church as well as one another in this inside the church. And then we ended last week with how do we make disciples? How does this happen in a local church? And we talked about the ingredients that have to be a part of this. We recognize that making disciples of Jesus Christ only occurs when the word is present, God's word is present, when prayer is present because the ultimate disciple maker is God himself. And we, so we need the, the Holy Spirit, so we pray. Third ingredient is all of us, that it's a, a church-wide endeavor. And the fourth is that we need to be patient with ourselves and with one another. And just a note about that, we're talking about a patience that is a godly patience, a recognition that God is the one that makes changes in people's hearts. But it's not a complacency. There's a diligence and a, an effort and determination to make disciples, but we're patient with God, with uh, or the results, because that's a God, God thing. This morning we'll take those principles of disciple-making and focus in on how our CBC culture can move more and more in that direction. Disciples are to be made through the local church. This is our calling. It's the main thing about us. Now, when we get down into the nitty-gritty and talking about application of biblical truth, it, it's frankly uncomfortable a little bit because when we talk about how we're to do something, we don't want people to feel like they're being burdened or that they're under some law again, or that there's just one way in which things need to be done and you need to get yourself in line with that way. The truth is, it's just the opposite of that. There's, there's, there's a multitude of ways and freedom. But I do hope you leave not with feeling like you're under a law or under compulsion, but that you are committed to accomplishing the command that Jesus has given to us as a church family. We need to leave with that commitment. So step one is evangelism. And I think being a teaching church, our comfort level has always been more in moving to step two of discipleship making, which is establishing and equipping. Because we like to talk about helping people mature in the word and become equipped uh, through their giftedness to accomplish the work that God's called us to do. We don't like talking so much about evangelism, and it may appear that we sometimes don't like to do it either. But, but evangelism is step one of discipleship. It's very clear when, when Jesus told the disciples, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them, that he's talking about sharing the gospel and by God's grace bringing converts into the church through baptism. 
So evangelism is step one, so I will talk about that. But I'm not going to talk about it yet. I'm going to talk about part two first. Not because I don't want to talk about evangelism, but I think it's important. The fact is that establishing and equipping, when that happens well, evangelism will happen. Evangelism will be the result. If discipleship is happening among us, then the result will be people who are make disciple makers. We will be evangelism, evangelizing. This is true because the end goal of establishing believers in the word of God is, is awe for God and a deep love for Jesus Christ. And there is an unbreakable bond between loving Jesus Christ deeply and obeying his word. They're inseparable. Jesus made that clear in John chapter 14. He said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments. And then he said the opposite of that. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Very clear. There's, there's a, a bond that's unbreakable. So if establishing and equipping believers does not result in obedience to Jesus in sharing the gospel and having a heart to share the good news among all of us, then establishing and equipping hasn't really happened, I, I would say. No matter how much Bible we know. So let's spend some time on discipleship part two, establishing and equipping, and then Maybe we won't have to spend so much time on talking about evangelism because this is going to be the result. It comes from it. It will happen naturally, supernaturally naturally. So let's look at a passage. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to look at verses 23 to 25. Let's see what the writer of Hebrews has to say about how we do this. As we go to God's word, please pray with me first. Father, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen watch, keep awake in vain. Lord, unless you build this church to be a disciple-making church with a culture and a passion to be about that work, we know that it won't happen. So we come to you in prayer and ask that you would make that happen. Unless you're involved in the next 35 or 40 minutes, Lord, We won't receive and benefit from the word of God that is communicated unless you make it happen. So we come to you in prayer. Lord, please help us to set our minds on things above for the purpose of bringing you honor and glory, for the purpose of rejoicing 
in the person of Jesus Christ and helping others to do the same. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I hope you're in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. The writer says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. The confession of our hope is the truth of the gospel. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. You see the day drawing near? A constant theme through the book of Hebrews is to hold fast to the truth that because of Christ's work on the cross, on our behalf, we are secure in him now. There is nothing more needed. There is no other sacrifice than what Jesus sacrificed. There is no other work that needs to be done. We are secure in him now. And this is important because as McNaught alluded to, living life in this world can be hard and will be hard and sometimes painful. There will be suffering. And living in the world that is broken like this is an attack on our faith. It will, it will test your faith. The enemy wants one thing of you that you don't hold fast faith to the confession of your hope. But let loose of your faith, your belief, your hope in what is true. And instead, pursue the false and empty pleasures of the world. Sometimes even good things. Tough times are a real test of our faith. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to know that we are secure in Christ now. And we are secure in the future. He wants us to hold fast to the hope, the certainty that we are secure in eternity. We belong to him. And as Matt mentioned on Easter Sunday regarding their a living hope, in it, which was read this morning as well, our future is as certain as Jesus is alive. That's really comforting to me. And it's as certain as God is faithful. Those are things to be certain about. So the writer says, hold fast, because he who promised is faithful. I have a personal way of holding fast. Every morning when I pray, I pray, Lord, keep me today. And what I'm praying is, Lord, keep me in faith today. Because I know that depending on my own strength, I will let loose. I won't hold fast. But at the same time that I pray for God to help me with this, I'm also praying with great confidence 
with absolute confidence, really, that he will answer that prayer affirmatively because he's promised to keep me. He's promised to hold me fast as we sing. He will never leave us or forsake us. But we know, we recognize our weakness. So the writer encourages them to hold fast to the confession of their hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then relating to that exhortation, he gives them another one, verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This this verse is worth thinking about because the word consider there is, is means the means the has the idea of thinking deeply about, of, of meditating on, of giving your full attention to. In fact, in Hebrews three one, he he talks about consider Jesus. He's talking about think about Jesus. Set your mind on Jesus Christ. Here he's talking about set your mind. Consider. And what's interesting here is the direct object of that verb is one another. Consider, literally, consider one another. Think about, meditate upon one another. So literally, the verse could be read, let us consider deeply, think about one another, others in the body, as they should do towards you, with a view towards stimulating one another toward love and good deeds. It reminds me of, um, we've had a number of people hold up the church directory and suggest that why not look through and, and pray for some families each week. And um, I think that's a good way we can be thinking about meditating on one another. We're hoping to have that in a form you could have on your phone soon, working on that. This love is towards God. We want to provoke ourselves to love. Love is towards God and towards each other. It It always produces good deeds. Because, as we said before, love for Jesus always results in obedience. And the writer of Hebrews understood this, too. In, in chapter 6, verse 10, he wrote these words, For God is not unjust so as to forget your good work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. There is a vertical aspect to the love that we are to encourage one another with and the horizontal aspect to it. As well. And the writer has this mindset that there's a requirement in order to accomplish this. And he expresses that in the next verse, verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another or exhorting one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The road to this love that we are to have among us, and the good works of changed lives is spending time together. 
being discipled is not something you do alone. And you won't drift into being a mature believer, a disciple of Jesus Christ. We must diligently pursue it. Not to say, of course, that there isn't a lone time with God that is really important. And we talked about that last week. We need to be in his word. We need to read his word. We need to meditate on his word. And when we do, it's really like Jesus himself is discipling us as we do that. So those are absolute critical times to prepare us. But we also must consciously be intent on considering one another, thinking about one another and getting together. And not just Sundays and Wednesdays. Now, this passage is often used with that mindset. Um, don't forsake the, the assembling of yourselves together. And, and the mindset is uh, make sure you go to church on Sunday, or at least most Sundays, and you got Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 covered. And for sure, Sunday is a major time that we should not forsake because it is the most critical time of being established in the Word. That is, it's the critical time for discipleship and for the body as a whole. But also the term one another in verse 25 indicates that there is a, a something mutual going on here. It's not just a one-way of discipleship. Sunday is an essential time, but it's mostly one way, and the writer has more in mind. Think about the New Testament texts that deal with being one another, with one another, and, and encouraging one another. I'll try to print those out for you. Here's, here's not a complete list. It's all over the Bible. It's all over the New Testament. Let me read a few of them to you. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Live in harmony with one another. Build up one another. Be like-minded towards one another. Admonish one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be patient with one another. Speak the truth in love to one another. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Look to the interests of one another. Teach one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Show hospitality to one another. And that's just something. The point is that there's a mutual ministry of discipleship that cannot possibly happen within a few minutes of interaction on Sunday morning or even Wednesday nights. So we must consciously be intent on being together and when we are together, we must consciously, consciously be intent on stimulating one another, provoking one another, helping one another to, to love and good deeds, to, to move to the right, to be discipled with, with God's words. Moving to the right, if you weren't here last week, is not a political statement, by the way. It's a move towards 
being a deeper, more mature disciple. There's two important things that we must do when we're together. One is that we must be involved in God's truth, whether it be God's word specifically or the truth of God's word as he has spoken it to us. And we speak to one another. And the, and the second is we must encourage one another um, in our faith and to continue in trusting and walking with the Lord despite circumstances. We must help one another hold fast to the promises and the hope which flow from the gospel truth that we know is reality. So what are the opportunities to do this here at Community Bible Church? Sunday morning is chock full of discipleship opportunities, of course. Message is the main focus, communicating God's word and exhorting to action. But also when we sing, as I said, when we sing, the truth of God's word is there. We're focused if we're listening. We're being moved not only in our hearts, but we should be moved in our minds toward knowing and loving Jesus Christ as we sing. We know that there are some people that have been saved as they sing a Christian song of God's word, God's truth. Same is true when we pray together as a church and as we celebrate the Lord's table. God's word, his truth, is spoken into our lives. The question is, are we listening? Are we li listening with an intent to receive it and be changed by it? Wednesday evening, of course, is a great time. We fellowship around a meal first. It's an opportunity to stimulate one another to love and trust Jesus. Bring the truth of his word into play in conversation the steadfastness of faith, helping people to hang in there. And then when we have small group meetings on Wednesday nights, we interact with one another in God's word, either with the direct classes, which we're going to be starting again soon, six to eight week classes, or by discussing the message that we have on Sunday evening and how it has, how it has affected lives personally. This is all discipleship going on. point is, discipleship is not just going through a, a little navigator's book with someone and having them fill in the blanks as we go through and then you've been discipled. Not that it doesn't include something like that or could, but it's much, much more. Many, many more ways. There's many, many other opportunities to be discipled and to disciple. All through the week here at Community. Uh, but before I mention those, I want to I want to take a little aside and remember that it's there are seasons of life, and we recognize there are seasons of life that people go through. With small children at home, and particularly with many small children at home, and particularly with sleep deprivation that goes with that, having a mom or dad venture out besides Sunday and Wednesday may not always be the right thing for that family. We understand that. What would consume them would be family discipleship, for sure. And even family worship, which we as a church would like to help you with as well. So we understand seasons of life. So if you're there, 
uh, don't feel like you're being burdened or being put under law. But through the week, there's other organized times that, that, we, that discipleship happens. There's, of course, the men's and women's Bible studies that have been on Tuesday nights. There's a Thursday night Bible study in a home. Now, we realize also that these, these times don't work for everyone. And so what I call very small people groups, small people groups have formed, as McNaught alluded to this morning, where just three or four together at, at uh, whatever time works for them. It can be an early morning. It can be later at night. But the flexible meetings... Right now, it's just the men doing that, and we'd love to have the women do that as well. I think there's a way that that could happen, so I open it up right now. If you guys are interested in, in something, in being a part of something like that, right now we have about I think, three groups happening now. If that's something you'd be interested in, feel like you'd like to be a part of, please see me, see one of the elders or our wives. Um, we'll, we'll try to make that happen, because I think these small groups, are very important for that closeness and that uh, building up of one another. But even beside these ways, of course, there's a myriad of ways that discipleship happens during the week. We can get together in a lot of different ways and interact with one another. There's play dates for mom and kids, and Terry uh, and I want you to know the pool is open, so we'd love to have um, a couple of families if you decide, let's just go over to a nice private pool and spend time together and interact together and disciple one another. It doesn't have to be formal, but getting together is important. We're inviting another family to a family outing you're going to, to a soccer game, to a baseball game, getting together just with someone for coffee or maybe just sending an email or a, an encouraging text. The ways in which we can interact with one another is unlimited, and it's all critically important. And it's all discipleship. Discipleship happens in all the small ways we can interact with one another. Key is that we think about one another. Consider one another. It's important to God. And it should be important to us. Speak the word to one another prayerfully and patiently in the context of this local church. Jonathan Lehman wrote a book called Word-Centered Church, and he speaks of the word reverberating around a church family. He says this, The word is taught, pulpit class, the pulpit classes, small group studies, then it reverberates around the church as a loud voice in a canyon. In our singing, in our children's and youth ministries, in our small groups, in our families and workplaces and schools, the word is heard and received and loved and repeated, bringing life to the church. And another thing that's very important to recognize, we are all unique. Every one of us has had different experiences in our past. We have different temperaments, we have different levels of understanding of God's word, and we have different gifts that God has given to us. There are people here that can positively influence your life that you may not even be interacting with at all. 
I say this not to condemn, but to encourage anyone inclined toward isolationism. And I say that because I'm one of them. And there's a number of people that I know of that are inclined not to interact with one another that you probably would never think that was, that was who they were. But it's true. I have to purposely push myself to be involved with other people. It doesn't come naturally to me. Um, but I know that that's what God wants me to be to do. I know that he wants me to be involved in other, other people's lives so that I can help them move a little bit in the direction of loving Jesus and trusting him. Jonathan Lehman also said this, I'm paraphrasing now, Christians that keep themselves at arm's length from others in the church family hurt themselves. Christians that keep themselves at arm's length from others in the church hurt themselves as well as others. Because they deprive themselves of the opportunity to learn things about their Savior in the many faces of their fellow members all the different ages and personalities and backgrounds and giftedness. And Warren Wiersbe, uh, in speaking about discipleship and evangelism being a church-wide endeavor, wrote this, in many respects we have departed from this pattern in most churches, the congregation pays the pastor to preach, win the lost, and build up the saved. While the church members function as cheerleaders if they're enthusiastic, or spectators if they're not so enthusiastic, the converts are won, baptized, and given the right hand of fellowship, and then they join the other spectators. That's not what we want to do. That's the opposite of what we want to do, opposite of where we want to be. So we're going to look at a few examples now regarding evangelism. Before I do, I just want to mention that with establishing the saints, we, we are working towards a discipleship plan that everyone would be able to know. These are the, these are the key things we'd like to see you go through, whether it be in classes that we're giving or maybe sometimes from the pulpit or in the small groups, the very small groups that you might have during the week. And uh, we, we're going to make a book nook, and uh, that will be some suggestions of books that have been read and uh, we feel like really important to go through. So, And, and also um, regarding family, helping the, the families to, uh, to have family worship and to disciple their, their children. So hold us to that. So please, uh, as we as we talk about evangelism, we're gonna, now we're going to go back to part one of discipleship, and that is evangelism. For that, I'd like you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. We're going to look at Apostle Paul's heart. And then we're going to look at 
heart of Jesus regarding evangelism. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. Paul wrote these words. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, though not being without the law of God but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may, by all means, save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a partaker of it. All related, being a believer, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, is having this kind of heart. And after that, after this in this passage, he describes how he disciplines his body to accomplish this calling from God. The point is that Paul had been totally changed by Jesus. He had an awe and a love for Jesus that made him willing to sacrifice his own preferences. Not just willing, but he wanted to sacrifice his own preferences. He wanted to be with people who saw things differently than he did, even if they were dead wrong. Even putting himself in uncomfortable and often life-threatening situations, which he obviously did, in order to win people to Christ. To save people, he said. And when I hear someone saying that, I'm thinking, you don't save anybody. And certainly no one knew that better than Paul, but that's what he said. He wanted to win people. He wanted to save people. He knew that it was God who converts hearts, who soften, who makes soft hearts out of stone. No one knew it better than Paul. He understand, understood God's work in salvation and in maturing believers. But he also knew this, and he wrote in, in Romans, no one's going to get saved without the word of God. That was true, too. Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him who they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? That was Paul's heart. He wanted to see people saved. He had a passion because he believed in the glorious grace of his own salvation. And he believed in something else, too. And I'm not sure if we believe in this as much as we say we do. He believed in the horror hell where people are unrepentant sinners are heading. Now, I've heard a number of people talk to me 
on Saturday mornings. Well, the thing, the one thing they don't like about the church is all these fire and brimstone messages. They don't like to hear that. Well, Jesus didn't mind talking about it. And maybe that's why, we, maybe we don't, all of us are uncomfortable with it. But unless we recognize what that is really like, I'm not sure we're going to recognize the, have the passion to save people like Paul had that passion. Hell has described the final destiny of unbelievers, unrepentant sinners is described in scripture with graphic language, perishing, outer darkness, blackest darkness, unquenchable furnace of fire, torment forever and ever with no rest day or night, shut out forever from the presence of the glory of God, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Paul understood the horrible destiny of the unsaved and that the Father had saved him from that destination, even though he completely deserved it. He had a love for God that was so great, and God gave him a love for, for people that were in his situation before, that were headed for hell, children deserving God's wrath, as, as Ephesians 1 says. Paul loved Jesus and the gospel and had an urgency to save sinners of which he said he was the worst. And then remember Jesus, what Jesus said as he was praying to the Father in John 17. You can, I'll give you a second to flip there. John 17, 15 through 18. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. He's talking to the 11, but he's also talking to us. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And then verse 18, focus. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And then later, after he rose from the dead, and he entered the room where the disciples were through locked doors, he said again, peace be with you. This is John 20, 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. As the Father sent me. How did the Father send Jesus? What were his motives? As the Father sent the Son, so you go. It was the Father's heart's desire to love and save people. It's always been that. That's who he is. And it was the son's heart's desire to love and save people, to reconcile lost men and women and children to himself, to see the lost, hopeless sinners repent and believe the good news. As the father sent the son, so he has sent us, his church. As he sent the son in humility and in love, so he sent us. As he sent the Son at great sacrifice, the greatest sacrifice. So he sends us. 
as he sent the Son to exalt the Father by spreading the glory of his great grace, so he sends us. And the church has been spreading this good news from the beginning. It's simply being passionate for what Jesus and the Father are passionate about. The apostles had this heart desire. Stephen had this heart desire. The early church in Acts had this heart's desire despite opposition. Those described in Hebrews 11, particularly the end of Hebrews 11, who suffered horrific persecution, had this heart. They, they were going out as Jesus was sent out. And millions of believers today, some even to the point of severe suffering and death, millions today have that heart. So the goal, as discipleship happens in the church, as establishing and equipping is happening in the church, and so many opportunities to be a part of that. A deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ results in more and more disciples who are in awe of who he is, in awe of their salvation, and in love with Jesus Christ. So if we love him, and treasure him above all else, we want to tell others about him. So how do we do that? What do we do? Well, willingly, we move out of our comfort zones. I'm not going to give you specifics. I'm not going to give you specifics. Don't worry. Um, we move out of our comfort zones to help others see the beauty of, of Christ and his salvation. And I'll just end with this. You might be thinking, well, I can't share the gospel like Pat or like Bonnie or others that, that seem to have this verbally gift, this verbal gift. I can relate to that. But we should all push ourselves toward being able to share a simple personal testimony that we can, that when the Lord opens the door, we can share that. We should all be push ourselves to be able to share a simple gospel communication. So remember in Matthew 28, Jesus said, make disciples in your going as you live life. Pray for and look for opportunities as you go through your day, to do an act of kindness, and with that act of kindness, bring a word of encouragement. A word of encouragement. Because all of us are strategic in, our, in being a disciple-making church community. God may give you an idea that others in the church can help you with. Uh, tap into the resources of people that are here that have more experience and have more giftedness, perhaps, in doing that. It doesn't need to be a, a church-wide outreach endeavor, but it doesn't not need to be one either. It could be both and. As you go, make disciples.
So in closing, Jesus told us to, told the disciples and us through them to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. We've kind of talked about the first three of those. Our Jerusalem is really our family, people that are closest to us, our friends at school, our friends that maybe a few neighbors that we really know. Our Judea is the people outside of that, maybe, the, maybe our neighborhood in general, maybe the neighborhood around our, our church, maybe other people in, church, in school that you don't know at this point. Our Samaria might be areas that are fairly close, but culturally very different, like Samaria was to the Jews. Could be inner city Marietta or inner city Atlanta, or we've been involved in eastern Kentucky and the Appalachians. Be my witnesses. And then to the uttermost parts of the world is what Pat's going to deal with next week. Because we've tried as a church to be involved in a biblical way of making disciples in the uttermost parts. And there's a lot more that we could do. But God has blessed us amazingly for this small church and what he's given to us. So be diligent. Be committed. Be patient. But let's all be in it together. <laughs>